Good morning, everyone. If you could go ahead and open up the Word of God to the book of John. We are in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Today we'll be covering verses 13 through 24. And just to recap, it does take a little bit to set the scene. If you're a first-time visitor or you missed a couple of weeks, uh, chapter 7 and 8 of the book of John are the same week. Uh, there's lots of content there, lots of words, lots of theology, lots of doctrine, but it's all happening actually in, in probably three or four days there. Uh, it, is the, it is the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths, one of three mandatorily required by the law of God feasts for the Jews to come back to Jerusalem. They had to bring their shelters, bring their tents, you might say, build the booths, build the temporary tabernacles. And as we've mentioned many times, going through 7 and 8, even last week, uh, they would construct these on the rooftops, the roads, wherever they could. All of Israel basically came back and encamped, and they recapped on uh, the great exodus out of, out of Egypt and how God provided them shelters. Also, we look at Nehemiah 8 and Nehemiah 9, how the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a, a liturgy, uh, you might say a recapping of all of the events, and several of them really stand out, where they would review how God took care of them, providing the manna for them to eat, where if, they wouldn't, if God wouldn't have, they would have died. Uh, there in John chapter 6, we see Jesus telling them that he is the manna. In order to have eternal life, you must eat of him, right? And then in John chapter 7, we see where Jesus says that if anyone thirsts, come to him and drink. And this is during that time where they would have been going over the, the journey and how God provided for them, how God provided water from a rock for the Israelites to drink of. If he had not have, they would have died. And so this is something they were speaking about daily. There was a water-pouring ritual there in front of them, the priests did, to visualize that moment. And then last week there we looked in uh, 8, verse 12, and we see where Jesus says he is the light. And we also took note to mention that light was extremely important, especially during the Feast of Tabernacles, where they reviewed all this great exodus and all the events, and they would review how God provided supernatural light for them in the pillar uh, that gave them direction. And uh, they were to go when the pillar moved, the light, right? We looked at how God appeared in, in, in flame, in fire, in the burning bush to Moses, uh, how God came on Mount Sinai in flame as well. And when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light, uh, this is big. It's huge. They knew what, what the light was implying. They knew what the light meant. They had a, even a ceremony uh, with that where they would raise these big oil-filled uh, uh, bronze uh, kind of like pans up in the air, light them on fire, where so historians say, we don't know if it's a stretch, but that all of Jerusalem would be lit up uh, at night during the Feast of Tabernacles. So as Jesus says, I am the light, I am the fountain, these are huge statements because they know what this is pointing back to. So one, we looked at, Jesus is showing how the types and shadows of the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. Uh, it's extremely important to begin to see this, if this is new information to you. It is not just prophecy where God speaks through prophets about details of the coming Messiah. There are types, right, in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. And so they're pointing towards the real thing, the substance. Jesus comes, and now we see them even better, that he is the fountain. He is the manna. He is the light, right? And so number two, we also looked at the claim of being the light of the Exodus is a claim to deity. Uh, this is God. They understood very well the pillar of light that they were following was a theophany, a manifestation of God. Uh, there in the tabernacle after it was constructed, that is where on top of the Ark of the Covenants, where that pillar, where that fire, where that manifestation, the theophany of God dwelt. So when Jesus says, I am the light, this is him. He could it just have easily have said, I am God. All right? So huge statements that he is making there. And in fact, in verse 12, it is that ego eme in Greek statement where he says, I am the light. It is I am. He's basically saying, I am God, the light. All right? So he took note of that. Quick review. All right, let's go on down today and let's read. Let's read verses 12 through 24, even though we covered verse 12 last week. Uh, just to keep it in context, 
I'll read and then we'll pray. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where am I going? You cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the Savior, so that we do not have to die in our sins. We are all sinners. We've fallen short of your glory. We deserve damnation. We deserve the curse and wrath that our sin rightly and justly deserves and has earned. God, we thank you for giving us grace, giving us mercy in the person of Jesus Christ, who being fully God, fully man, uh, came and lived the perfect righteous life that we could not live and was completely sinless, completely blemishless, so that his death is atoning, sacrificial, provides justification, propitiation, salvation for all who believe in him. We thank you that our sins have been placed on Jesus Christ and that he received the wrath so we do not have to, so that we do not have to die in our sins, that our sins can be removed. God, we thank you for that mercy. We thank you for that grace. Help us to be strengthened in those mercies and in that grace and in the fact of this, even as we speak today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If we go back to verse 12, verse 12 again just says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right, bold statement. It is one of those I am statements where he is definitively declaring that he is God. Uh, the darkness, we were called, those who walked in the darkness were Egyptians in the Old Testament. They followed other gods. Uh, they actually had had lack of light on them too when the pillar showed up to protect the Israelites from the from their wrath coming towards them and God put wrath upon the Egyptians so those who were in the darkness were recipients of God's wrath as a believer God has supernaturally moved you from darkness to light all right and now we walk in that light so how were the Pharisees to respond to such a thing if you have God in the flesh saying, I am the light, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, they should be making the connection, all right? In the Old Testament, in the Exodus, when the light went up and moved, the people went with the light. They followed the light. Now, the light is in front of them. What should they do? It's kind of like what they were supposed to do when the prophet came out of Deuteronomy, where Moses says the prophet is going to come. What are they supposed to do? Listen to him, obey him, or you will die. Now, Jesus says, I am the light. What are they going to do? They should be talking about this. What does this mean? But instead, look at their response. In verse 13, their response deals nothing with the light at all. Deals nothing with Jesus' own words. Instead, they try to find fault in him, just like they've done before. So verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, did Jesus have other witnesses? Absolutely. He had tons of witnesses, right? Even if you just recall just back, in, back earlier in chapter 6, somewhere around 20,000 people witnessed him 
uh, feed them supernaturally, right? And they were already following him because of all the signs that he had done. But this will be a cyclical argument that continues to come up in the book of John. And if you have not noticed this, I, I keep telling you, but the book of John is very repetitive. And that is one way that we learn. And it seems like John was on to something here, all right? God was on to something through John. Like, people need to learn. How can they learn? Repetition, 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 all right? So look back, for example, at John chapter 5. Hold your place there in John chapter 8. Uh, did Jesus have other witnesses? Yes, and this is not the first time these Pharisees have come against Jesus. And most likely, these Pharisees that are coming against Jesus are part of the Sanhedrin. We'll get more into that in a moment there, but they are the core group, the leaders of uh, the Jews, the leaders of Israel, supposedly. But as we know, the Pharisees, Jesus himself called them uh, extreme hypocrites. They were whitewashed tombs, dead on the inside, pretty on the outside, etc. And they were always judging, always judging. But now look at, look at John chapter 5, 32 through 41. We'll review this quickly, uh, but just to, so you kind of get the idea. They've had this argument before. Verse 32, Jesus says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So who is the witness there in verse 32 through 35? It is John the Baptist. That is, a, that is, that is no little thing. This is tremendous. This is huge. The prophets of what we call the Old Testament prophesied by God that there would be a herald, there would be a messenger that would come to pave the way, announce the coming Messiah. So when we turn to the New Testament, we find that people were, were ready. They were looking for the Christ, but they were also looking for this one that was going to announce him. And we find that that is exactly what happened. So when they accused Jesus of having no witness, he calls on the, he, he not only is the prophesied Christ, but he calls on the prophesied announcer, uh, messenger, witness that came. G, uh, John the Baptist showed up, right, wearing the clothing, extremely uh, similar to the prophet Elijah, wearing the, the, the skin of an animal, the, the, the belt, and coming out of the desert, calling people to come to him, telling them to repent of your sin and believe in the one that is to come. This was his message. So that's what John the Baptist was doing. When Jesus comes to John the Baptist, what does Jesus say? Or what does John the Baptist say? What's the great announcement? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is a tremendous announcement. This is huge. Who can take away a person's sin? I cannot take away your sin. There is no priest that can take away your sin. There is no one on earth that can take away your sin. But John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. They can take away the sins of the world. Like this is, this is the one and only Savior provided by God that would be the atoning sacrifice like a lamb was in the Old Testament to take away once and for all our sin. Huge announcement. So is John the Baptist a witness? Absolutely. Very important witness. If he was not there, if there was no John the Baptist, if there was no messenger, we would know that Jesus is not the Christ. He would be disqualified. But there is this great witness. All right. Uh, look at verse 36, John chapter 5. Uh, witness number two is works. Uh, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And we've covered this quite a bit, but it's worth reiterating again. Uh, the works of Jesus, the supernatural signs. They are signs from God. Uh, we cannot just walk up to a person who has been lame for 37 years and say, rise, get up. And all of a sudden their ligaments, tendons, bones, muscles, and everything is instantly healed and they're jumping and leaping, right? We cannot do such a thing in and of ourselves. I cannot get just a couple of sardines and a piece of bread and feed thousands of people. Why not? Same reason you can't, all right? We can't do those things. It's supernatural. Who's in charge? of supernatural. It's God. So when God stamps his stamp of approval on Jesus by the works that he is doing, 
It is clear evidence, just like the prophets of old, that this is my messenger. God authenticated quite often his messengers by supernatural signs. The giving of the law with Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. It's like these are the, this is the time. And God's stamping his approval on Jesus like no, like no other person in history. So they should know. This is approval. This is a witness to their eyes for them to see, yes, God is approving. Uh, number three, uh, look over at, uh, the, just very quickly, verse, uh, verse 37. And we just have God the Father, which is, which is all this is tying together because all this is, is God doing this, right? God is sending John the Baptist. God has prophesied about John the Baptist. God, the supernatural works. But verse 37, 38. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So here we have Jesus is saying, I have John the Baptist. I have the supernatural signs, these works. I have God the Father as well. And we'll get into more of that in the scriptures to come today. Uh, but even if you think of God the Father, we can think back to God's verbal affirmation of him, even at the baptism of Jesus, where he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, right? But we also have this to the totality of God the Father fully approving of the son. Look at verse 39. The fourth witness that Jesus brings up in this situation is the word of God, the scriptures. Verse 39 says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life i do not receive glory from people all right so here you have the scriptures and then the pharisees studied the scriptures it says they but they looked to the scriptures in and of themselves to have eternal life and they were missing what the scriptures were pointing to the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ is right there in person, but they refuse to see it. So Jesus had the scriptures. And you think of the scriptures, how important they are. How do we know that Jesus is the Christ? There were people before him that came to claim to be the Christ. There were people after him that claimed to be the Christ. All of these witnesses are extremely important in validating who Jesus is as the Christ. He had, he had the great messenger announce him, John the Baptist. You even look at John the Baptist's birth and, and all that was involved. It's supernatural is God, God ordaining all of this, right? You have God the Father, of course, approving. Uh, you have those supernatural signs and works and even the scriptures. But this was hard, even for the disciples. Um, we're done with John 5, but flip over to Luke 24, 25 through 27. And you guys are very familiar with this passage. It's a, just a great passage because you have, you have Jesus who has died, who is, has, has now come back, and his disciples are just distraught. They're, they don't know what to do with their lives now. Their, their leader died, and they thought he was the Christ, but now he's dead, and Jesus comes back from the dead, and, then, and, and this is what he tells them. Look at verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Where did the prophets speak? That's scriptures. He's saying, oh, you're, you're being foolish. You're being dummies. You're being ignorant, all right? All that the scriptures that God has spoke through, all the prophets have been pointing to me that all these things have to happen. You're so slow. Let's speed it up. And that's what he does. Verse 26 was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Huge passage here. I mean, this was the best seminary on earth, right? It's just right there. You have Jesus. You have all the prophecies that have been pointed to him, all the types that have pointed to him, they're discombobulated. And Jesus says, all right, it's time to go to school. And so he literally, from the beginning, it says, with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And you see a radical change. By the time we get to the book of Acts, you see Peter's opening, opening uh, sermon, and it is rooted in this 
It is completely rooted in the scriptures, in the prophecies, in all these things coming to pass. That's how these people should know that Jesus is the Christ. So we see this pattern continuing. Jesus opens their eyes to the witness of scripture, and they carry that on, and we should carry that on as well. Now back to John. Go to John chapter 8. Look at verse 14. John chapter 8, verse 14. And the point of that is that these people had already known the arguments. Jesus had already had this debate, discussion with the Pharisees, but yet they're bringing it back up again. I am the light of the world. And they're like, ah, no, you don't, you're bearing witness about yourself. So now they start to accuse, accuse, accuse about him not having adequate witnesses. So verse 14 Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So at this point, as we've mentioned here already, the Pharisees are trying to get him on a technicality. Their ears are shut, they're closed, their heart is stone, and they're just wanting to get him on a technicality. They misuse a couple of passages in the law of God written by Moses that if someone has committed a crime, there must be two witnesses. They are manipulating this, as the Pharisees often do, to say that Jesus cannot even speak unless there are two witnesses, which is it's nonsense, all right? Jesus is not being accused of a crime. He does not require, if you take this to its logical end, no one could say a word unless there were two witnesses to prove whatever it is that they are saying. So the Pharisees are manipulating the law like they often do and saying that he does not have adequate witnesses. Jesus tells them that his words do not require a witness to make them true. All right, that's, it's not only because he's Jesus, but that's true for anyone. They should not be ruling or judging this way. But at the same time, this is God. Does God ever speak a lie? No, God is truth. John 14, 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes a father except through me. He is the very definition of truth, all right? Uh, what is the underlying issue with the Pharisees' unbelief? Look back at verse 14, and we see that this will be, has been, is today, and will be repeated many, many, many more times, especially even through the book of uh, John chapter 8. What is the underlying reason that they don't want, they have, uh, this issue with Jesus, it's their unbelief that he is God. Uh, they, they deny where he came from or where he is going. Uh, they reject that fully. So since they're not willing to see who he truly is, they reject everything he says. And this is true for people today as well. If people do not accept Jesus for who he truly is, they will not accept his words. Uh, the words of Christ carry authority and demand obedience. Why? Because he is God. So the, his words are extremely weighty. Uh, we must listen to him. He is not just a man. But when the Pharisees, or when people today, claim that Jesus was just a good man, and just a man, uh, in that case, all the words of Jesus are equivalent of anyone's opinion. They're just the same. They're, they're, they're no different, right? Because he's just a man, just like just a human, like we are. So we could have discussions, we could disagree, and oh, Jesus, I see you see it that way, but here's what I think about that, you know? And you could put in your own two cents, and you could go back and forth, and that's the way people treat Jesus. But no, the, the, Jesus is the great I am. He is the creator of the world. So when Jesus speaks as the author of life, as the creator of everything, and is saying, I am the way of salvation, people should definitely listen to it. But if you deny that Jesus is God, then again, his opinion is just man's opinion. And some people say, oh, he's just a good man. It reminds me of that uh, C.S. Lewis back in the day had the trilemma. He said, you can't just say that Jesus is a good man because Jesus claims to be God so often you either have to say and agree that, yes, he is God, he is Lord, or, he put three L's together, you would have to say that he is a liar because he said he's God so much, or that he is a lunatic, that he's crazy. I mean, think about people that claim to be God today. They're lunatics, <laughs> all right? So either he is Lord, 
and is, he's saying what is true, or you have to look back and go, oh, he's, he's a liar, which that's not a good man, or he's an absolute lunatic, and that's not a good man either. So you can't just say that Jesus is a good man. His point was you had to land on one of those three L's. And for Jesus, obviously, he is saying, yes, I am Lord. Look at verse 15 and verse 16. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even I, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now here again, the Pharisees claim to be on the side of God. They claim to be, claim to be making the right judgments. They are the leaders, the teachers, and the judges of Israel. And they claim to be doing what is right and judging rightly. However, Jesus, the ultimate judge, looks at them and says, you're judging according to the flesh. This is an extreme insult to them. They are supposed to be the judges, but he's saying you're judging by the flesh. And sometimes in the, the flesh can be used in different ways in the New Testament. Uh, it, can be mean, it can mean sin. Uh, it can mean multiple things. Here it seems to be just superficially skimming the surface. They're judging by the outward appearance. They're not going any deeper than that. And so he's saying they're judging very lightly. The opposite way that God judges, right? God does not look on the outside, but he looks at the inside. Remember him calling David to be the king. He says God looks at the inside. He looks at the heart of the man. But they're judging him superficially. Now, when Jesus says here that he does not judge, uh, we know that God, that Jesus Christ does judge. But he was apparently saying he does not judge like they do, according to the flesh. Uh, so these guys who claim to be the judges of Israel make up the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 people plus the high priest is 71. And just a quick historical note, they pull this from Numbers chapter 11. If you want to go back there with me, you can. Numbers 11, verse 16 through 17 if you're kind of curious or have been, or most of you already know, but how did this Sanhedrin ever come about where they were judging Israel? It's actually originally ordained by God. But we see that by the time of Jesus, uh, they were, it was full of crooked judges. But Numbers 11, 16 through 17, uh, just the verses previous to this, you recall that Moses was praying for God to kill him because he couldn't handle all the grumbling of the people any longer, and he was overworked, overstressed, and couldn't handle it, all the decisions that had to be made. And so God, God hears that prayer, God answers that prayer, and provides him 70 men to help him. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and walk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is upon you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. All right, so here, here's the beginning of, of the group that is now standing before Jesus, harassing him, questioning him, superficially judging him, and who also, right, will be the ones who, who continually pursue him until they put him to death. This is the Sanhedrin. So it's, it's bizarre, it is wild to watch this take place. That those that God appointed, the Sanhedrin, way back in the day of Moses, full of godly, great men to help judge the nation, make decisions to help Moses, now have gone so far the opposite way from honoring God, obeying God, that they want to put God to death. They want to put Jesus Christ to death, and that's what they end up doing. And even if you recall, and we'll get there over the next months or years, but as Jesus is put to death, uh, what do they do? They bring in their false witnesses because they know now they've, they've got to have these witnesses. They bring in two false witnesses. They're always misusing their power, misusing the law of God. Uh, look at verse 17 in John 8. Turn back there with me if you would. Just a little quick historical note there on how the Sanhedrin came to be. Originally, it was put there by God, good people, good men. But now, those days are long past. Except, remember, we have a glimmer of hope that there in the last, uh, last part of uh, John chapter 7. 
Nicodemus, who uh, begins to question things. I look at verse 17. Jesus goes on to say, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. All right, here again, Jesus is continuing this line of, of thinking. Uh, Jesus plays their little game, but instead of calling on a person from the audience or calling a disciple or calling someone who has seen his works, he names God the Father as his witness. Now look at verse 19 and 20. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So here, they, Jesus says, my father is my witness. They try to question him again, try to dig, dig on this. Where is your father? But again, we notice that this is a, a cyclical argument. They know what they are doing. They know who Jesus has claimed is his father before, and they're trying to set him up again. So look back at John chapter 5. Hold your place there. And just look at verse 17 and 18. And you'll recall this is the same thing that happened before. They're trying to uh, accuse. They, they know what he's saying when he's saying that, that my father is my witness. And they say, well, where is your father? And by the way, there's no mention of Joseph uh, from early, 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 early in Jesus' life. Uh, where We're ba basically uh, left with uh, some theoretical ideas but it does seem that joseph died early on and so we don't we mary of course right she's mentioned multiple times there at the death and john is going to take care of his mother but uh, all that's leading to there must not be a man in that, her home anymore joseph must not be around so when they, they say where is your father uh perhaps they even know that his physical father is no longer here but look at uh, john five seventeen and 18 uh, jesus answered them my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So John adds that note there in verse 18. And we recall that Jesus was working on the Sabbath. They, they wanted to put him to death for doing such a thing. And Jesus lays claim to the fact that I am working for the same reason my father is working. Uh, my father is, is God. And so I am working because I am God. And they took this to understand that he is claiming to be equal with God the Father. What did they want to do? They want to put him to death. So early back in John chapter 5, that was already going on. They knew what he was saying over here in John chapter 8. And they're trying to pin him down on it again. Um, the most loved doctrine and the most hated doctrine you will find in Scripture and even today is the fact that Jesus is God. The Pharisees hated it so much, they wanted to murder him for it, and they, they do. Uh, people today hate this doctrine, would murder Jesus if they could, if he was here claiming to be God, but instead, they will often just turn into idolaters and create a Jesus after their own imagination and remove the deity of him. So he's not so offensive, so that we make Jesus into our own making. And we make God in our own fashioning, right? So that is the Jesus that so many people believe in today, that that Jesus cannot save anyone because it's a figment of the imagination. But this is it. The doctrine that is so loved by believers is absolutely hated by unbelievers because when you say Jesus is God, again, it means everything he says carries authority. And you must submit. You must walk in that light. You must submit to the word of God. You must be obedient to him. But if you remove his deity, say that he's just a man, again, his opinion, your opinion, uh, UNT professor's opinion, whatever, it's all the same, right? Uh, but he's God, raises his opinion above everyone's because he is, is the truth. Uh, in John 8, it seems that they are pressing Jesus to get him to claim equality with the Father again at this point. Uh, but instead of saying it exactly as they want him to, he says that they do not know the Father, because if they did, they would know him. And knowing who Jesus professed to be his Father, 
this statement would certainly inflame them a great deal. And, and look, for example, uh, oh, I have these up here, I believe. God the Father and God the Son work in perfect harmony to bring about salvation, and you can't choose one at the exclusion of the other. There is no way to be right with Jesus and wrong with God the Father. There is no way to be right with God the Father and wrong with Jesus, if that makes sense. And we, got, we know that, of course, right? So we find, in, in totality, we find that the Trinity uh, works together for salvation, and they're perfectly in harmony on this, that there is no person that God the Father wants to save that, the, that Jesus Christ does not die for, that the Holy Spirit does not regenerate. So we find that it is 100% effective, and they're 100% harmonious in salvation. So when these Pharisees say, claim to believe God, speak for God, and know God, but yet they're rejecting the Son of God, Jesus calls them out. You don't actually even know God. Because if you knew God, you would also know me. If you recall back to even Peter, when, uh, when Jesus is asking them, who do people say that I am? And Jesus says, or Peter says of him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because man did not reveal this to you, but God. This is the light has been on. The light is on. You're moved out of the darkness and you're seeing rightly. The Pharisees did not. But just a couple of examples of God the Father, God the Son working together. Hasn't been that long ago since we went over these, but I'll just hit them again. John six thirty nine, And this is the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus speaking. Who sent him? God the Father. That I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Again, perfect harmony here. We covered this. Uh, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So if God gives, God Father gives uh, the Son a uh, hundred people, how many people will be raised up on the last day? It is 100. It is 100%. All those that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son, and the Son will raise them up on the last day. Perfect harmony. All right, look at verse 65 in John chapter 6. Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, I wanted to speak of, of the depravity, the total depravity or total inability of in and of ourselves to come to the Father. We must be drawn. But also we see this harmony that, that all those the Father draws will come to Jesus. It's a 100%. So the Pharisees are wrong to say we are right with God and wrong with you. No, you must be right with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is working out that salvation. It's in perfect harmony. So the level of harmony of the Father and Son is in salvation is 100%. All those and only those that the Father draws will come to Christ, and Christ will successfully raise 100% of them up on the last day. Uh, look at verse 21, John chapter, uh, chapter 8. John chapter 8. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Where was Jesus going? Uh, he was going to go back to heaven. We remember this Feast of Tabernacles is only about, about six months away from the Passover where Jesus would be put to death. Uh, they will put him in the ground, and he will rise from the dead, and they will look for him, but they will not be able to find him. So he will ascend back into heaven. Uh, John, this again, hold your place there in John 8. Just look back over at John 7, 33 through 36. The same argument comes up there where Jesus is telling them that he's not going to be there, and they accuse him of going to leave Jerusalem at that time. 33 through 36 then uh, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Uh, why, what does he mean, you will seek me, and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come, is what Jesus tells them. So, back in John chapter 7, Jesus says he's going to go away. They won't be able to find him. They're, 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 again, not thinking correctly on this. They think he's going to leave Jerusalem 
because they, the authority, the judges, the teachers of Israel, have not received him as the Christ. They have rejected him, rejected him, and now he's got to go out to the misfits, on the peripherals, way out there uh, where the Gentiles are and where the dispersion of Jews are. He cannot come back to the religious headquarters of God Almighty there in Jerusalem. uh, That's what they're accusing him of, uh, saying that. Now they're saying, actually, he must plan on, maybe he's planning on killing himself. He's so rejected by us. Maybe that's what he's considering. Uh, We know that's not the case. He is going to ascend back to the Father. This section started off with saying, you do not know where I've come from or where I'm going. And it's still based on that same flow of thought. Look at verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Again, clearly Jesus is speaking of uh, not playing a game of hide-and-go-seek with them where they can't find him, but he is saying, I am going to go back to uh, Tyler read from Daniel chapter 7, beautiful passage where Jesus, uh, God the Son, returns in the flesh before the Ancient of Days and receives all power and all glory. Uh, he has returned back into heaven. Has been re- That glory that he left has been reestablished now. Uh, but... They cannot come, and they're not going to go there. Why are they not going to go there? Uh, What reason does Jesus give for the Pharisees not being able to go where he is going? Look at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is a very good verse to put to memory, to memorize. So many people today think they're on their way to heaven for various reasons, right? And various levels of belief, if you could call it that. Different versions of belief in Jesus. But verse 24 is very clear. Consider his audience. who They, they, they see Jesus. He's right in front of him. They believe him to be a real person, yet they do not believe in him fully, truly. Look at this verse again. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So two reasons are given why they're not going to go where he is going. And we're talking about heaven. He's going to heaven. Uh, Number one, they are going to die in their sins. And, And this is one of those things. All of the world is divided up into two types of people. And you hear that a lot. Okay, those who pay taxes, those who don't pay taxes. Or you ever, all these or guys and girls used to be able to do that. You know, uh, you, people try to divide the world up into multiple, multiple ways. But here you have one absolutely 100% duality uh, split down the middle that every single person who lives is going to die and you're either going to die with every sin you have ever committed on you, with you, you in you, you will die in your sins. But think of it as being something encapsulated by sin, that every person is either going to die in their sin and go face the judgment of God for all that sin, and you deserve the wrath, the curse of God for all of eternity, or the other side is you will die with no sin. And there is no in-between. There is no purgatory people go to and their sins are burned off over years or millions of years or trillions of years until they finally achieve righteousness and work their way up into heaven, right? No, you're saved by grace, not by works, all right? So you either die with your sin or without your sin. And that is the only way a person can die. Every person you've ever known, every person that is alive, every person in this room right now You will die with your sin, all of it, or you will die with none of it. Every sin you've ever committed, there's nothing you can do to get rid of one of them. Even if you were in the, even if you say you're so good that you stopped sinning in the first grade because you said, I'm only going to live right from now on. Uh, But in kindergarten, you stole stole Fred's pencil out of his desk, all right? Uh, What happens to you? You're going to die in that sin, and you're going to face the judgment and wrath of God because that is sin. And you can't get rid of sin. There, you have no cure. There's no ointment to apply, no band-aid to put on. There is no shot you can take to get rid of the sin that you will stand before God and, and he will see. 
He is all-knowing, and he has a perfect record. The book of Revelation says every sin has been recorded in the books, right? So he is putting this before them. Verse 24, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So why is it such a big deal to die in your sins? Because they, this is taking it with you. You're taking that sin with you to face God. Is there a second chance in the afterlife? Uh, some people wrongly believe that they can live in sin all their days on earth, but will somehow be pardoned by God in the afterlife. This is pure deception. This is not true. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7, don't be deceived by such people, all right? Um, some think that they will be able to repent and believe after death. They know repentance. They know belief is required. They just don't want to do it now. So they think, after I die, then I will do those things. Uh, this is not the case. It's impossible. Some just hold to the hope that God will, will not truly punish their sin because God is just love, like a big care bear in the sky, all right? And we know that that's not the case either. The Bible is extremely clear that each person who dies in their sins will face God with their sins. Contrary to what the world teaches, every single sin must be and will be punished by God. There is no second chance for salvation after you die. So you do not put hope in the future after a person has, has died. Uh, I don't know how many funerals you've gone to before, uh, but where someone has lived an extremely sinful life. They died a sinner. Everyone knew they died a sinner, and then the people get up to speak, and somehow they're angels now. Have you ever done? been to those? Everyone's like, yep. yep. Uh, that, it, how? What happened? Uh, no, they died in their sin. Someone needs to get up and say, this is Uncle George, and he died in his sin, and he's facing the wrath and judgment of God now. You don't want to confuse the people out there, right? Like little Johnny's sitting there going, oh, he was a horrible man. He's in heaven now? Well, great. What's this mean for me? I can live like him and get to heaven. Uh, so, no, the Bible is clear. There's no second chance in sin or no sin. And how can you get rid of your sin? Look at this. Look at this. Uh, uh, number two, they, uh, they do not believe in Jesus. All right? We must believe in Jesus. Look at 24 again. I told you that you would die in your sins unless, this is an important unless, circle it, underline it, stars all around it, you will die in your sins. And there, there's a condition, though, that you will not die in your sin. What is it? You believe that I am he. You would not die in your sins. All right? This is extremely important. And you also have another I am statement here. Uh, verse 24, the he that follows I am is supplied in the English language. It's not there in the Greek. It's another ego, eme statement coming from Exodus chapter 3 where God says, I am who I am, and this is my name. And Jesus claims this name here in verse 24. He claims it also in 858, which they will pick up stones and try to kill him because they're finally fed up with him saying, I am. So look at verse 24. What are they to do? In order not to die in their sin, they must believe that Jesus is truly who he says he is. He is far more than just a man. He is God in the flesh. Uh, what does their rejection of Jesus mean for them? It means that they will die in their sins. They will not go to heaven. They will not be where he is, and they have rejected God. So there's one God who has created all things, who spoke the universe into existence. Uh, Adam and Eve sinned against this one God. All mankind are guilty before this one God because in Adam we have all sinned. But we also sin actively. We have sin on us, in us, through us. We deserve the wrath and curse of God. But this one God who created all things that we have all sinned against has provided the one singular way of salvation. And to reject the one way of salvation is to die with and in those sins. So, in summary, there are only two groups of people in the world, those who will die in all their sin and those who will die with no sin. There are only two eternal destinations, heaven and hell. There's only one way of salvation is through Jesus the Christ who died for the sins of all who would believe in him. 
And you remember Jesus comforts his disciples before he leaves because they see that he's going away. He says, don't worry, don't fear, because I'm going to bring you to where I am going. He does not comfort those who are in their sin like the Pharisees. Unbelief comes in many different flavors as we look at the book of John, yet all of them have the same result. So whether it's a person who speaks kindly of Jesus-ish uh, then or today, or it's the most devout, angry atheist you can imagine, unbelief has different flavors. Unbelief can be in this very room where people are not believing in Jesus as fully man and fully God. They could be rejecting him and only thinking that he is a person. That is unbelief. What does that mean? It means you will die in your sin. You will not go to heaven. How can this such a thing be avoided? See Jesus for who he truly is. See the, him as the light. Walk in that light. See that he is God. See that he is the great I am. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us such clarity in your word that Jesus is the, the manna that we must partake of, <coughs> that we must eat of, believe in, for our salvation to have eternal life. We thank you that Jesus is the fountain of life. As you provided water for the Israelites to drink in the desert or they would have died, you have provided the fountain of life, Jesus Christ, that we must partake of so that we do not die. God, we thank you that you provided Jesus, who is the light of the world. Help us to see how beautiful this light is. Help us to walk in that light, Lord. And God, I pray that we would not be like the Pharisees who were so close physically to Jesus and in a very religious uh, geographical spot at the temple, but yet rejected him and remained in unbelief, that they would die in their sins. Uh, God, I pray that there would be no one like that here today. From the youngest to the oldest, Lord, may we see who Jesus truly is. May we see the beauty of that great salvation. May we see our sins, how we cannot get rid of them in and of ourselves, that we need true atonement, true sacrifice. We need the blood of Jesus for forgiveness of our sins. God, we pray if there's anyone that has not seen the light of Jesus, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself for salvation today. In Jesus' name we pray.